Hi, my name's Vanessa Vallely and I'm CEO of We Are The City. If you want to take your communication skills to the next level, you need to be listening to The Art of Communication, a podcast by my good friend, Greg Rice. Welcome to The Art of Communication, where entrepreneurs learn to grow their business more effectively through mastering their ability to connect to others. Whether you're looking to increase revenue, widen your network, or just getting others to buy into your vision, we'll help you dramatically transform your business and life by communicating more effectively, improving your leadership skills, and reinvesting time back into your family. You're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and your life, so let's start the conversation with your host, Greg Rice. What's up, guys? Today, I got to chat with Vanessa Valley. Vanessa is the founder of We Are The City, an organization focused on driving inclusion across the UK and India. She's also the author of Steel Heels, which tells her story of how she came out of a pretty rough part of London to climb all the way up the corporate ladder to become the COO of a major London and UK bank. And she's also a renowned speaker on topics around motivation and inclusion. So we talked about a lot of things, but we got pretty deep into her own story and how she was able to climb up the corporate ladder out of a challenged background, but how she was able to do that so effectively. Um, But then when she got there, she didn't see many other women at the top of that ladder. And that drove a strong passion in her to try to change that. So we got into some of why that is and, and what she's doing about it through all the great work that she's doing with We Are The City. And we even got into an interesting conversation about cultural impact on communication, leadership, and inclusion because she's expanded We Are The City into India, which is a very different culture from the UK. So so really interesting stuff there. But Vanessa is just a powerhouse. She's great to talk with, and she's helped so many women break through into the corporate world. She just has some great lessons for us about how we can all work together to drive better inclusion. Vanessa, thank you for joining the Art of Communication podcast today. Really excited to have a chance to chat with you. And it's really good to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, you're doing so much amazing work around inclusion. I'm excited to get into all the communication topics around diversity and inclusion with you. But I'd love if we could just start off by hearing a little bit about your story. I know you started off in kind of a challenging area of London and you were able to rise to become the COO of a bank. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that amazing journey. So um, I left school at 16. You're quite right. Grew up in a fairly socially and economically challenged area of London, but I never although there were lots of barriers out there for me, I never really saw them. Um, anything I got was a bonus. Um, so with my, um, my few GCSEs, which is you know, the equivalent of, kind of exams or qualifications in the UK, I headed off into the city to try and get myself a job. But you know, from a diversity perspective, I was a little bit different, you know, not from, you know, in terms of even my gender at that particular point or color of my skin or my religion, it was that social and economic side of things. So I had a very kind of broad accent that told everyone I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the kind of individual that went to college or was off to university. So I think there were quite a lot of kind of biases, but again, I never really let that be a barrier because, you know, I'd gone there with a plan and that was to get myself a job. Because if I got myself a job, my mum wouldn't have to work kind of four jobs. And that's no sob story. She kind of did that for years and I did it with her. And it made me who I am in terms of my own work ethic. I know in life, if you want something, you've got to work for it, right? So I sure. um, started off, managed to get myself a job in a bank. Um, 
promptly lost that job after about four months because I called <laughs> out the bad behavior of someone very senior. And there's probably a more tactful and diplomatic way of me doing that than what I did. So lesson learned age 16 that people are going to press your buttons. And there's a way of dealing with that. And that certainly wasn't the way that I did it. Anyway, it wasn't so much they fired me. They just wanted to relocate me 200 miles to a different office, <laughs> probably to a room I'm sitting on my own, I think. Uh, but the biggest thing about that is I kind of lived up to their their expectation of what I'd be like. So I let myself down and I experienced my first bout of resilience because, you know, at that particular point, I thought the world was over. I'd never have a career. No one would ever reemploy me. Um, but I got back on my horse and I managed to get myself a job in a tech company. And this was at the time where no one was using computers. You know, we was looking at computers in the same way that we're looking at AI at the moment. You know, it's going to take our jobs. They're going to take over. And at this IT company, we were shipping PCs into the city of London when people were still on pen and paper. We were teaching them how to use DOS-based programs. You know, everything was done on a keyboard. The kids have it easy these days, right? They just sure. talk to it or, you know, touch the screen. <laughs> and, but we were teaching them how to use things like WordPerfect. I mean, Lotus123, really, really old applications. But these were revolutionary of their time. So I worked there as a receptionist, kept my head down managed to get myself a job in the training department purely because I used to put my hand up a lot for the work that no one else wanted to do. And that kind of got me noticed. So again, a huge people watcher used to watch my boss, watch how she dealt with situations, watch how she communicated, watch how she, you know, managed difficult kind of conflicts and learn enough about the job and the world of work to be able to get her job elsewhere. So I moved off to Reader's Digest as a training manager and one day, one of the trainers went sick that were teaching. I think it was CC Mail, a uh, very first mail package. And I said to my boss, I can teach that. And, you know, there's a Windows course afterwards. And I was like, I can teach that too. And so I did. And I realized that I'd saved the company money by doing so. And my boss said something that's always kind of sat with me. You know, you spit into, in the world of work, you sit into two camps. You fit into two camps. You either make the company money or you save the company money. Right? Either way you're the jewel. So I took him at his word and I thought, I'm going to save the company loads of money. So I ended up training everyone across the company and really done myself out of a job. And I think, again, realizing at an early age that sometimes you do a job and your job won't necessarily be there at the end of it. And that's very prevalent in today's times. But I learned that from a very young age. And I also learned that it's the relationships that you would make along the way that would carry you into the next job. However, with Reader's Digest, this weren't the case because there wasn't really, I didn't have much of a skill set other than teaching training, which everyone knew how to use. So they offered redundancy. It was a £5,000 check, which was a lot of money for a young girl that came from where I came from. So I took it and I set up my own business. Um, I was a managing director of a company of one, which was me. <laughs> I absolutely sweated the asset of that business, which was me. So never having the business acumen to realise that I could, if I got called to do a training course up in Edinburgh, I could send a trainer that was in Edinburgh to do that and just sit in my front room and put a 20% markup. No, I would run to Edinburgh and do the training course. And, you know, so I was running all over the country and it was only when I got a letter from our tax man. So the IR, uh, you know, saying that, you know, you owe us this amount of money. I was like, who's the tax man? Why have I got to pay taxes? You know, I thought that money was mine. So clearly was not grown up enough to run a company. So paid that off, run back to corporate met my husband at my next job funny story around that we were doing the same job different departments he i used to pull the leads out the back of my pc and log a help desk call so he would come and fix it knowing full <laughs> damn well that i knew how to fix it myself 
But after about six calls to the help desk in one week, he was like, is there something you want to say to me? And I was like, oh, bear in mind, I was a lot younger then. I was like, is there something you want to say to me? Anyway, we eventually got married. Um, <laughs> but we worked in the same company. I always tell the story, his career massively accelerated at pace because he knew how to network and, and build sponsorship. And my method of opera- operating was very much how hard can I work, how many hours I can put in, and thinking that that was what was going to get me promoted and noticed. So to cut a very long story short, I jumped, my strategy was financially driven, if I'm honest. We wanted to move to a bigger house. So that strategy was I was going to jump jobs every two years to get that pay increase. Mm-hmm. I'd do a period of freelancing and uh, contracting uh, because the money was better so that we could move house, which I did. And then finally I settled and this was just slightly before the financial crisis. So I carved out a bit of a niche around big transformation programs because as we were building up to kind of the financial crisis, a lot of the companies were merging together and that meant big cultural changes, big transformation in terms of IT infrastructure. So working a lot in a supporting role with senior leadership teams where I was the only woman. And it's that that's what led me to build We Are The City because it was increasingly frustrating. I kind of got in that room with a bit of hard work and by accident because back in recession times, you know, whereby before, if there was a job that needed doing, if someone put their hand up to do it, unless you had the credentials, they wouldn't give you the opportunity. Whereas during the financial crisis, you know, the only credential you need to have is that you were breathing and they'd let you do it. So I kind of, you know, kept putting my hand up for all the stinky work that no one wanted and carved out quite a niche kind of role. Um, and again, one of my kind of core strengths, you know, without blowing my own trumpet is I like people. I like building relationships with people from the top to the bottom of the organisation. So I've very much kind of got this, this label attached to me as being able to get stuff done. But that boils down to relationships and, and how you ask people to do it, which obviously we're going to talk about. Um, so I ended up being COO in one bank and then eventually my love of all things diversity and inclusion, my love of gender progression and youth. Um, I hung up my corporate heels seven years ago and I poured all my efforts into We Are The City. So building that community out, but also building a suite of products and services that I could use to help corporates to attract, retain and develop their female talent. Yeah. So that's kind of what I do today. I do a lot of public speaking around corporates all over the world. I wrote a book called Heels of Steel. I'm in the middle of the second book at the moment around mentoring and sponsorship. Um, I do a lot of work, uh, charity work, um, going to schools when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. So I've got my fingers in so many pies. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, still married to the man that fixed the computer. Two kids, (laughs) two dogs, two cats. Does he still (laughs) fix the computers? No. And you know what the funny thing is? You know what it's like when you've got a job like that? You know, his like aunties and uncles still turn up with their PCs. He's like, that was 25 years ago. You know, <laughs> no, he's the CIO now. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a good progression. <laughs> so a couple of things you mentioned there that I'd love to chat a little bit about, and then we'll definitely get into all the great work you're doing as part of We Are The City. But the first thing you mentioned that caught my ear was around the accent, right? That Yeah. that Because I've talked to a lot of folks about obviously discrimination around race and religion and name, but accent isn't something that we've gotten so much into. And yeah. it's certainly um an aspect of it right that i think is it can often be overlooked so i'm curious if you if you still have the accent today if you shifted to change the accent or how did you get over that bias around accent there's there's a bit of a story there actually i mean it still comes out i still think it's great when i'm dealing with people from the u.s because there was never no judgment and a lot of the people i worked for were u.s investment banks so they (laughs) never ever judged me because they didn't know and i remember trying to explain to somebody once, like, 
I'm from the wrong side of the tracks, you know, like in, to bring it kind of into, into context. But I, I think when I noticed it the most, say, when I was younger, I was always mindful that perhaps I wouldn't pronounce my words properly or, you know, um, especially when using like THs and S. So I remember I had a boss that used to correct me all the time. You know, if I used to say first and he'd be like, thirst, Vanessa, thirst, TH, TH. And like, when I think about it now, it's quite bad. Um, but there was a, another particular boss that used to kind of do the same thing. He used to say, well, that you wouldn't normally use that word in that sentence, Vanessa. So it, and again, it wasn't a bullying thing. And I kind of took it in my stride, but I did go off and have elocution lessons because it did start to bother me. So the bigger the rooms got with the more senior people, I just thought I'm not, A, I'm the only woman in the room. I don't want to give them another excuse to judge me. And, and that judgment starts long before people hear your voice or even when they talk to you in conversation, you know, it's like, so where do you live? You know, straight away you give an answer. And if it doesn't kind of match their expectation, it's like, oh, where did you go to school? And then that's another indicator. Mm -hmm. Oh, where did you go to college or university? I didn't go. They've already pictured you. They've already put you in a box, you know? I mean, I'd hope that this doesn't go on too much these days, but we know it does. But with the accent thing, so I went off, I had six elocution lessons. I remember I used to go into the office in my building with a lady, a linguist that used to teach me. Um, we used to practice with Queen Elizabeth's the second speech on the eve of the, I think it was the Spanish Armada. I can still probably remember <laughs> some of it now, um, but I used to feel really royal, but, um, <laughs> but just kind of, just so that I could switch it on when I needed to. And I remember the, the particular boss, I mean, he felt awful when he found out when I said to him, he said, you're starting to speak slightly differently and I said I'm having elocution lessons because you kept correcting me and he was mortified you know what he thought was a bit of tongue-in-cheek you know just pulling me up on certain things was, was actually bothered me that much that I went and got these elocution lessons so he paid for them <laughs> in the end <laughs> I'm sure at the company's money but but I kind of also had that realization after I did that that I shouldn't really need to change for anyone. I am who I am. My background is kind of what makes me who I am, and I'm excessively proud of that. So yeah, I will break into a Cockney accent when you know my family are very traditional East End. So I'll definitely break into that Cockney accent when, as and when I need to. And I try not to put we in the UK we call it putting a plum in your mouth. I try not to do that so much because it's not really who I am anymore. But yeah, accents. Accents definitely get in the way. I remember going to a Toastmaster event over here and Toastmasters is where they kind of, it's a very, um, it's a, quite an old organisation that teaches you how to present. So it's not like a speakers association. And it's, um, and I remember going there and when I first set up We Are The City and the whole room was from ladies from Europe, ladies from India, ladies from Africa. And, and they were all there because they felt slightly inferior about their accents. And I was mortified, you know, so it does go on. People will yeah. judge you by that. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing you mentioned was around the fact that you lived up to their expectations of you, right? Oh, yeah. Early on in, in the process when you kind of made the mistake. And I think that's an important aspect to realize as well, right? Like we have expectations based on what we perceive somebody's background to be. And if somebody like is coming out of Oxford, right, makes the same mistake, I might say I might give them the benefit of the doubt where somebody from a more disadvantaged background who might have more of an accent, I might say, oh, see, I told you this is who they were. Yeah. You know? and, and, and that neither of those things might be true at all. So I think it's something we have to be on the lookout for as leaders. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it wasn't some, I think that there was, I say, an opinion because of where I come from and because I was quite vocal 
around things that that was that was inevitable that was going to happen because I dealt with it how I would deal with it where I come from and if you witness bad behavior regardless of who it is you call it out mm-hmm. but I say at 16 there probably was I could have done with someone to say mm, Vanessa that's not how you do it mm-hmm. <laughs> if anything as I've got older I've become more that 16 year old girl again that just you know don't care and we'll call it out um but i do it in a much more tactful and diplomatic way got it <laughs> and the last thing you mentioned i want to talk about was the fact that you put your hand up for lots of different jobs that other folks want to do didn't want to do and i think that that is another great example of communication right it's not always about what you say uh, and a lot of times it's about what you're willing to do and how that builds your rep- reputation and how others view you So I think that's something, and that's a great opportunity for folks to be able to build their careers by being willing to do those things that other folks aren't willing to do. Well, it's a visual behavior, isn't it, Mm -hmm. that people witness. Um, Even I was clearing out one of my cupboards in my house and one of my school reports were there. And one of the things it said on it was, Vanessa would do any lowly task, even picking up rubbish from the playground. And Mm -hmm. so I was kind of always brought up that way. You know, so taking that into the world of work where I got to do, if there was something it needs doing, if something needs doing, you roll up your sleeves and you, you get it done. And even today in my organization, we're a small team. So, but if stuff needs doing, you know, I'll stuff goodie bags, I'll get down on the floor and, and pack leaflets and stuff like that because, you know, you're ne- I don't think you're ever too great in an organization not to roll up your sleeves and get the job done. Yeah. So fast forward to more recent time. Tell me a little bit more about We Are The City and and the work that you're doing there. So it was We Are The City was really set up as a not-for-profit. It was a side of my desk hobby. I could see the women that I worked for. How would I get them in that leadership room? How would I get, you know, there wasn't a set of circumstances like I had that would lead them there. So how could I open up doors of opportunity for them? Well, there were absolutely none in my organization at the time, but there were a few women's networks around. And originally I was very anti-women's network. I remember talking to a friend of mine and she's like, oh, you know, I said to her, like, I want to meet like-minded women like me. I want to share stories. You know, I want to know there's other kind of senior women that are out there. And she said, why don't you try the women's networks? And I was like, oh my God, I don't want to go to one of them. They burn effigies of men. And, you know, why would I want to do that? And and it was only kind of when I looked into it, there were about four networks at the time in in, in London. They're very entrepreneurial networks, but they were also quite hierarchical, like you had to be recommended by someone else. And it, the joining process was quite bureaucratic. When you went there, all the women looked the same, whereas some of the women that worked for me were from different parts of the world. And I knew that I didn't feel like I fitted in in that environment. So how would someone else from a different race or from a different background, like, you know, how would they feel comfortable in that environment? So I wanted to set something up that was all encompassing, that was for every woman from any single background, from any industry, who's of any rank, and I wanted it to be free. So we built the website and the the story behind that, I wasn't actually going to do it. It was one of those half a bottle of wine ideas with my husband Mm -hmm. on a break away from the kids. And by the time we'd finished it, we'd actually thought we'd solved world peace with this website. And we (laughs) came back and the kind of alcohol wore off and I was sitting in work and he bought me a website domain and he said, let's just do it. So it's him that kind of drove it. And and it was a really slow news day from a gender perspective, because back then gender was on no one's agenda. Diversity wasn't even a thing 12 years ago. So that, so I think I had about four items on the website. That was it. You know, the, the, it wasn't what's on the TV and what's in the papers these days. And then 2010 came, the Lord Davis done a report around having more women on board. So they set the 30% target. And that really opened up the doors, I think, for this conversation around gender. 
Mm-hmm. So I continued to build We Are The City off the side of my desk, building a community, only ever giving them things, never selling. We never had anything to sell, just signposting them up. And the more organisations spun up to support women in their careers, the better we got at signposting. So it was only seven years ago when, as I say, I kind of fell out of love with banking and I fell in love with everything I ever did with We Are The City that I decided to leave. And that's when we kind of built other things more strategically to help companies attract and retain their women so today we are the city has 125,000 very diverse and intersectional women we look after around 150 different corporate clients we have two sets of awards where we shine a light on women below director level so I'm very interested in that middle layer of women because I think Mm -hmm. if we put the effort in there that treacle layer where things get really difficult we'll see more women in senior positions over time So we run a number of events, we have conferences, and it isn't about fixing the women, it's just about giving them a chance to hone existing skills, to build like-minded peer networks. So we do a lot of stuff there, we contribute towards research, but we use our audience also for research. So if a university or a business school, you know, we canvas that to really get to the root of kind of what's going on and what the barriers are for women. So we also have We Are Tech Women now, which is the sister site, because the number of women in tech in the UK is just 17% and it's not moving. And we have a big pipeline problem because the lack of you know, young girls taking STEM subjects, even if they are, they're not moving into STEM careers. So there's no pipeline there. So we need to hold on to the women that we've got and we need to attract more women back into the industry. So We Are Tech Women, again, a free website full of resources podcast that we launched last week webinars you know pointing them in directions of women's networks events they can attend so very much a set of business resources for women that they can use and for the webinars and the podcast side you know that is completely global you know the networks and now everything's virtual it's opened up a whole new world of learning uh, which i think is fantastic yeah so a lot of tremendous resources tell me a little bit about any focus areas you might have around communication? Like what are the unique communication challenges that that women face and how are you helping them overcome those? I don't think there's any from actually the way that we communicate with our women. I mean, there's been a lot of talk around, like even around recruitment and, and how that, how those roles are communicated and the language that they use, mm. you know, to one of the, we did a few focus groups and we looked at a couple of job specs from companies and the, the language very much, you know, you will be this and you will be that. And all of the women automatically deselected from that kind of narrative, you know, mm. because the way that the job was being, you know, it was too prescriptive. So the minute the woman could, and again, without generalizing, all women do this, but it's very easy for us to deselect ourselves out of things if we don't feel we're ticking all the boxes. So, you know, there's been a huge push around different kind of job descriptions and how they're communicated to women, but also around how companies communicate opportunities to women in general. You know, even turn to the images that they use, you know, when they're looking, if you're only ever looking at job specs and there's only ever white women there or it's only ever pictures of men, again, you're going to look at that and think that organisation isn't for me. So I think there's been a lot of work from the communication side that's been done, you know, around recruitment. I think, again, there's much more open dialogue about the, the barriers that women face. Before, some of the things that I see on Twitter and LinkedIn would have been real taboo subjects. No one would have spoken about them for fear of retribution. And, and don't get me wrong, when a woman does put her head above the parapet, she invariably gets it chopped off verbally somewhere. You know, the amount of cyberbullying that goes on for women is, is off the hook um, from a UK perspective and, and I think elsewhere. So it takes, you know, those campaigners and to, to kind of voice their opinions. You know, there's a lot of kind of bravery there to do so and it shouldn't be that way. But I do think 
we talk a lot more and, and we communicate a lot more about our experiences. And I think a lot of kind of the women's networks and, and some of the channels that you see have created safe spaces to do that without that retribution. So I see, let's say, the communication being a lot more free-flowing, but still with an air of caution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's interesting. And the cyberbullying is actually another very interesting topic um, from a communication perspective. Definitely a huge issue. Yeah. Um, I think for anybody with <laughs> an opinion about anything these days, but especially women yeah. um, facing increasingly violent language from folks. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure that that's extremely difficult to deal with. And, and I, I guess the answer for an individual anyway is to just ignore it. I'm not quite sure from a society, societal perspective what the answer is there. You know, you hear things about not giving these people oxygen and keyboard warriors and things like that, but it does stifle women's voices, you know, because mm-hmm. it, we might not be, it might not even be an opinion on a gender issue. It could be an opinion on anything, but, you know, you get the pylons and stuff like that and the trolling and it, it prevents you from, from, be, from expressing your opinion. Mm-hmm. But the same thing, you know, on different channels, if, if that's like, there are certain social media channels I find a lot more positive than, than others, mm-hmm. you know, that you can have a much more engaging discussion on rather than, you know, being out there in the ether where it takes a nanosecond for people to reply and start tagging in other people. And then before you know it, everyone's got an opinion on your opinion. <laughs> sure. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> so shift topics a little bit. I know that you also launched We Are The City in India, which is really interesting to me. I'm curious of the differences and in, in kind of challenges to launching it, the differences around inclusion in Indian culture versus UK culture. I'm sure there's uh, pretty dramatic differences there. Absolutely. I mean, the reason we launched in India is I used to work in India. I used to go back and forth as part of my job because uh, they run our back office, was run out of it, different parts of India. And when I was over there, there were some of the ladies that I worked with, they were like, where's our We Are The City, Vanessa? Why don't you create a platform for us? And it was with a little bit of funding from EY and Barclays that we built the platform. And there's a wonderful lady at Barclays called Caroline Graham that was working out as a common in India. And she said, look, I know you're busy. I'll build it. And between her and my husband, the next thing, we've got a platform that was in India. (laughs) So we ran a couple of awards out there. We went and done some events. But we made sure that we put... um, Indian women at the front of that organization because it wasn't about Western women going in thinking we understood even though we'd worked there and you know we didn't have that lived experience so it was really important that that whole committee was Indian women in the workplace so we've done a number of work and back in those days when we launched there there wasn't many Indian women's networks or organizations we was kind of one of the first But what happened over the last, and especially over the last couple of years, we've seen them spinning up. I think, you know, with a change in their prime minister and stuff like that, it's a slow change, but things started to change. And we started to see organisations spinning up, asking why there are no women on the boards, you know, and and having conversations that wouldn't have gone on when we first went there. And it was at that particular point, we've like, they've got it. Let them take it from here. You know, we will support them. Um, I think one of the organisations we handed over, like our data, base and said look you know like let us help you kind of grow and if you need any advice from stuff we're doing in the UK which might be a few steps ahead we could advise you but there's some absolutely incredible initiatives going on but one of the things I do notice from a cultural perspective having done a lot of kind of talks in India as well the ladies in the room they're very well respected they're hugely educated 
Um, but obviously when they get out in society, sometimes the attitude towards towards them change because they're women. So I think, you know, you've still kind of got those issues as well. But they are incredible individuals to deal with, you know, and we even noticed when we did the awards, the difference in nominations between the UK versus the, the award nominations from the ladies in India. The UK were very coy about their achievements, almost not wanting to tell you what they've done and what they've achieved. It's like getting blood out of a stone, whereas the ladies in India were pages and pages of things they've achieved and things they've done and this qualification. I mean, they're incredible, incredible women. But like each nomination was like four pages long. So, you know, obviously education is very, very important to them as a culture, as a cultural thing. But yeah, it's just very interesting, the difference between the two. But yeah, there were certain topics that we wouldn't broach. Um, at that particular time that perhaps we were talking about in the UK. But I think if you're doing anything in anyone's country, you have to be respectful to their culture. Mm-hmm. And again, having that committee of a, incredible Indian women that used to advise us around what would do, what would be most useful, you know, was really beneficial to us. And they were absolutely hungry for that knowledge, for that different perspective. They all want to get ahead in their careers, set up their own businesses. So, yeah, it was an, it was an amazing experience. And as again, I... I I'm, Saying to my husband, I'm desperate to go back to India. I really miss it. I'm curious how you find um, their male counterparts to be accepting of it in India relative to the UK. I think there's a, it's like there's a respect for women that hold senior positions, like a professional respect. Um, I'm not going to generalise. Obviously, there are differences in terms of how women are treated in multiple different countries, mm-hmm. not just sure. India. Absolutely. So that would, that would kind of be my observation there. There's a lot more things, you know, that are not acceptable here. But some of that's only happened over the last kind of few years. You know, I was talking to someone the other day. I remember back in my days in banking, you know, back in the very, very early days, you know, for someone to touch you physically wasn't a bad thing, you know, to tap you or, you know, perhaps tap you on the bottom or whatever back in like my mum's working day. So that wasn't that far away. So I think, you know, things have massively changed. But again, from a cultural perspective, some of those countries have still got a way to go. Yeah, for sure. So tell me a little bit about the book, Heels of Steel. Heels of Steel. That was on my list of 40 things to do before I was 40. So I'd never been to Buckingham Palace, which obviously I got to do when I got my Queen's Honour. Um, I'd never taken the, the Clipper, which is a small boat up the Thames. You know, from, a, from a, someone who's inherently a very much a London girl, there was a number of things I didn't do. But I got to number 40 and I thought, I want to leave something that's a bit more sturdy. I want to leave a bit of a legacy. I wanted to tell my kids that story of that girl that kind of started in the East End. And I wanted to leave all of the stuff that, if only I knew then what I know now, to the next generation of women. And to be honest, it resonates with men as well in terms of kind of growing their careers. So that's where the book started. And I had nine weeks to write it because that was the only gap I had before I had another project. And um, I set myself this goal. I went uh, to a wonderful lady called The Book Midwife and I went on her course and they don't let you write for like the first few weeks. I was chomping at the bit to write. And then I started writing and I didn't stop um, for the next kind of eight weeks <laughs> and 84,000 words later. But it was quite easy because it was my story. Um, and then obviously the back, the back end of it was the tips. But I was reading the last page because I'm due to write the second one once I've finished the mentoring book. But on the last page, it talks about I've just left corporate. I'm going to hang up my heels. I'm going to take six months off and work out what I do. I think it was a, less than five months later that I'd um, launched in India. 
I can't keep still. That's my problem. Um, so that was the book, but it was something that was really special to me. My grandmother used to run a secondhand bookstall in Soho, which is the West End of London. Um, she ran her own business. And my childhood, I was surrounded by books, old smelling books. I can still, you know, there's nothing like the smell of an old bookshop. And I've still got some of those books. So to be able to put my book on top of them, you know, I don't know, it's a little bit of a tribute to my nan in there as well. Very cool. What would you say is kind of the biggest takeaway from the book? I think that it doesn't matter where you're coming from, it's where you're going to. I think that would be the biggest one because there was a number of hurdles in there and I didn't always make the right decisions. It's not a rosy story. You know, I make mistakes all the way through it and I think that's life and you learn from that. You know, if everything was so linear, where's the excitement there? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think that's, that's kind of the biggest message that I kind of pushed that, you know, we will have these pitfalls, we will make wrong decisions and there will be this unconscious bias about us that we will face at different parts of our lives and in our careers but it's how you kind of get past that and how you just stay focused to achieve whatever it is that you want to achieve sure absolutely so just a few more questions that i like to ask everybody who i have on the show the first question is around the power of conversations so i'm a big believer that just one conversation can have a really meaningful impact on your life and the direction that you take so I always like to ask my guests if there's one conversation that you can point to that had a really meaningful impact on the direction that you ended up taking. I remember, well, yeah, when I was at school, I had an English teacher who told me that all I would be good for is canning sardines in a factory. Mm-hmm. Um, so sardines being a fish, I didn't like fish at the time and that frightened me. And it was that conversation that actually made me get my head down and really push myself into my exams. I mean, I'd say I still didn't come out with the best grades in the world, but they were better than had I not had that conversation. So that's the kind of first one. The second one was a mentor of mine. When I left corporate, my LinkedIn profile was still very corporate, all the deliverables, all the banking projects, stuff that I'd run. And I'd put this little bit at the top about being an entrepreneur and stuff about We Are The City. And she rang me up and she said, are you in or are you out? And I was like, what do you mean by that? And she's like, well, I look at your LinkedIn and you're a corporate that's hanging out there just in case your entrepreneur side don't work out. So who do you want to be? Are you the corporate worker that's going back in six months or you are an entrepreneur that's going to be taken seriously and the people are going to buy into your ideas? So it was that. I remember stripping off and with every line that came off of that LinkedIn profile, a project that I delivered, a transition that we did was painful because I remember the hours and the blood and the sweat and the tears. Mm. And I was erasing my history, you know, by just editing that one little field on LinkedIn. I was removing the things that made me who I was and it was painful and there all I was left with was this tiny little paragraph about Vanessa at We Are The City and I remember I mean it's all on there now I've taken off kind of like I've still got the companies on there but I took off kind of what I did and what I delivered but that was another real powerful conversation and I think also because she had the confidence in me she saw more of what I would achieve than what I did at the time and probably still does but that was another massively meaningful conversation because she pushed me in the right direction. Yeah, it freed up room for you to build new things. Yeah, right? absolutely. Basically. But also I was kind of, I was hedging my bets. Oh, so if this don't work out, I can run back to corporate. I think I've been out too long now. <laughs> it's actually, and you seem like you're having a lot of fun too, but, um, and it's actually interesting. I think that a lot of folks don't think about what they're communicating with their LinkedIn profile. You know, no. I think there's a lot of opportunity there for sure. <laughs> it's your shop window, right? And I, t- mm-hmm. and I do this in my talks. You know, do I want to look in a shop window? Do I want to see cream cakes and things I want to eat? Or do I want to see an empty shop? 
So that LinkedIn profile is an opportunity for you to sell yourself. You're allowed to brag and boast a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, what I find most with people's LinkedIn profile is there's no context. There's no cause and effect in terms of what they write. So for example, you know, I'm a project manager in a retail bank. Okay, I've got a vision of what you do. You're just a worker. You contribute to that bank by running projects. How about I'm a project manager at a retail bank with a portfolio of £200 million worth of change across four geographies involving 600 people? All of a sudden, your job has gone from zero to hero just by you adding a little bit of context. So, yeah, give me the cream cakes. Put the cherry on the top. That's what I want to see. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Second question. As you think about your journey to date, if there's one communication skill that you could have had in more abundance that would have made it easier for you, what would that have been? I think it goes back to what I said in the beginning. It was that learning how to stop my mouth and engage my brain <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in, the, uh, in the early days. So there's still a little bit of me like that, but um, I definitely think it was that communication skill. And listening, it's just, it's about listening. I found that because I'm quite an excitable individual and I'm full of ideas, it's understanding that sometimes not everyone around you who you're trying to kind of not persuade to adopt your ideas or trying to get on board likes that style. So by, you know, that overexcitable, we can do this and we can do that. But, you know, I've, I've laid out the next five years strategically thinking. Sometimes it's appreciating that everyone in that audience will have a different communication style. Some people will see things in a total different way. So your one size fit all fits all isn't necessarily going to work so I think I think I learned that quite I'd say the middle of my career even like I remember there was a guy that worked for me and, and I could never get my head round he wasn't ambitious he came in at nine and he went home at five and I didn't understand at that time why he wouldn't be ambitious so my communication style to him was always like, well, look, this will open up that opportunity and then you can go for this position. And I remember him saying to me, Vanessa, I don't want that. I just want to come in and do my job. And I realized that you do need, and you know, I've, I've heard individuals like that call termed as like steady eddies. You need a steady eddy on the team, right? Someone that isn't running around like a mad chicken like I was because there was a few of us coming up with ideas. Someone that just actually said, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to do that. And he was absolutely right. But it took me a while to realize that, that that's okay. And how I communicated with him thereafter was completely different. Not everyone is in your mold. Yeah. A side question, just uh, that kind of came to me while, while you were explaining that. And it's something I struggle with as well. So I'd love to get your opinion. Someone who's as motivated as you are and doing so many things at once, how do you balance that with kind of, you know, giving the family time and staying connected with your family? Again, I mean, it, true transparency, there've been terrible times where that balance has been completely out the window. Mm -hmm. There was one job where, you know, I didn't see my husband for weeks. We were doing a transition. I was living in London. I didn't see my kids. I kind of gave it all up for the job. And like, I look back at that now and I regret that. That was crazy times, you know, chasing a promotion, chasing that VP position. Um, and for what? No one was going to write on my gravestone, you know, brilliant. She delivered a brilliant project. So there's been times when it's been really, really bad. And then there's been times when, you know, I, I would like to think I have got the balance now, but my kids are kind of 17 and 19. They're a lot more grown up. Mm -hmm. I made the decisions that were right at the time. They made sense at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, nowadays I make sure that 
you know, we do have some family bonding time. And again, after 25 years of marriage, you need to make time for those date nights, you know, where you're not working or you're not talking about work. I mean, one of our children's very good with cutting the work conversation. She's like, enough on We Are The City Now. <laughs> you know, we're bored. Um, they call my business the, the baby brother they never wanted. I'm like, it's, why, is it, why is it a man? You know, but <laughs> I think, you know, making sure that you carve out that time, you know, and I always give that advice. You cannot get some of those memories back you know, again, in the interest of transparency. And it's with regret that I think about it. I remember going to a school play and like my boss was at a Blackberry. I mean, that's how many years ago it was. But my boss was emailing me and I'm trying to watch my daughter's school play and I'm trying to answer that email. That never saved people in the world. You know, when you look back at it now, you think, God, that's crazy. So I think the biggest piece of advice is you can't get that time back with your kids. So work is important, you know, for your own whatever your, your your drive is and stuff like that, or, you know, your need to be recognised and, you know, your need to do a job well, but you can't get that time back with people. For sure. Absolutely. And I've been through that struggle before as well, you know, just yeah. so focused on work and then, you know, having some real community conversations with my wife around how much I'm missing and how much she's struggling without my help, you yeah. know, things I didn't even realise because I wasn't around enough to realise it. It was a really powerful conversation that definitely changed my direction a bit. And, and you do have peaks and troughs. So, for example, my husband's just starting a new job. He needs to be there. He needs to show up. So at the moment, I've got, you know, I'm walking the dogs twice a day, but I'm happy to take that on. But eventually that needs to turn off, mm-hmm. you know, and we very much, even when we were climbing our careers, we used to have like a deal, like one of us would have a join a job and then sit there for two years and do the support role while the other one climbed. And then the other one would stabilize. And then the next person, they she'd, sorry, he'd leave and he'd climb and I'd play the supporting role. And we did that around four, probably about four different jobs. But that was the deal. You know, we won't moan about it. I'm taking one for the team while you kind of be there and be present and be in the face of who you need to be. And then it'll be my turn. So again, the communication within the marriage is really, really important around yeah. that support that you both need. I remember when I was writing my book, I said to the kids, and every year we sit down and go, what do we want to achieve this year as a family? And it was being silly things like the kids want to learn to ride a bike or one of them want to learn to swim. And when I actually said to my look, look, I'm going to write the book, I'm going to need a bit of support. I've got nine weeks to do it. I might get up a little bit earlier. I might miss a couple of things, but it's for nine weeks. Is everyone on board with that? You know, and they did. That support was there. And once I'd done it, I could come back into the frame and then let, you know, put my effort into other things. I think the clear communication is so important, right? Because you have to set the right expectations. Like I might be working late and just expect my wife to be okay with it, you know, without having that discussion and setting that expectation. But if you're both on board, it becomes a lot easier to do those things, I think. Yeah. I mean, even at the moment, we've got elderly parents. So, you know, our kids are getting older. So you're in that sandwich generation of caring for elderly parents. And, you know, the teenagers issues, they just get different with age, right? They're just, they get more complicated. Yeah. And yeah, they get more expensive. Um, But, you know, you have to balance all of a sudden, you know, when your parents age, you've got that extra responsibility as well, where anything happens to them, work's got to come second, same as with your kids. So it's just extra parameters that you have to kind of deal with. Yeah. But that's life, right? Sure. So, well, last question for you. Who is the best okay. communicator that you know, either know personally or just know of? And why do you say that about them? My dog. 
<laughs> That's joking. a first. That he is tells a first. me when he tells me when he wants to cuddle. He tells me what to eat. Doesn't argue back. He's the greatest person in the world. No, I'm joking. My um, dogs argue all the time. <laughs> who's the best communicator in the world? Um, in my family unit, I think, I think my mum. My mum has a, a great way of of being heard and getting you to believe that your her opinions are yours. <laughs> I'm not quite sure she'd, she'd be a great CEO of a company. Um, so I think I think I would I would definitely say her. But I mean, and the, at the moment I couldn't look at my kids and say they're great communicators yet because I think it's something that comes with time, you know, and experience as you learn. As say, my whole journey's been learning how to communicate with different people to get the best out of them, but also to learn myself how to communicate. Because I think, I don't know whether you've come across this some of your other guests, but we all think we're champion communicators. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I say something to my husband, and I'm like, but I told you that, and I explained that, and I thought that was clear. And when he replays it back to me, I'm like, no, that wasn't clear at all. So I think having that self-awareness to kind of take take that on board. But yeah, the best communicator in my house is definitely my mum. She calms things down as well when things go a bit crazy. Definitely great skills to have. Mm. So where can folks find you? Where can they find the book? Where can they learn more about We Are The City? Um, where can they connect with you? So they can go to We Are The City. You can subscribe. You get our newsletter. You can follow us on Twitter under WATC underscore updates. Um, I'm on Twitter, WATC underscore girl. Um, you can tell when I set up my Twitter account when I was a girl. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> Um, I generally don't connect with people I don't know on LinkedIn, but if they mention if they mention they heard this podcast, then I might make an exception to the rule. Um, <laughs> we've got wearetechwomen.com. Everything that's kind of going on in the tech space for women um, is on there. They can get the book on Amazon, and hopefully there'll be a couple of new books out uh, next year. Very cool. Is there any presence in the US? I know a lot of my audience is in the US. No, and do you know, so there's a great, um, there's a great, it's a, it's a similar website, but it's more kind of on the banking side called Glasshammer, which is run by a good friend of mine. But we've got no presence in the US. I've done lots of talking, uh, talks over in the US, used to go backwards and forwards for my work and stuff. But no, but most of the stuff on where the city will still resonate. They're career mm-hmm. articles. They're not a country mile away, so... That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah so they can still access it. Do them. tune in. Yeah, we've got 45 free webinars on there. There's loads of free resources. We've just not just said the podcast on We Are Tech. Um, there's 15,000 different career articles. So, you know, we're all under the same sky. It's all the same set of problems. For sure, for sure. And maybe enough people will check it out to motivate you to swing over the pond. I'd love to. I'd love to. Give me that opportunity, please. <laughs> well Vanessa thank you so much for the time today it was a great conversation I really enjoyed chatting with you thank you thanks for having me don't let the momentum stop now continue your path towards connecting at another level by joining the communication nation we'll be discussing today's topics as well as more real world solutions to transforming your life personally and professionally at facebook.com slash groups slash join the communication nation Remember, you're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and life. And that conversation starts right here on The Art of Communication.